My name is Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about how we deal with change in organizations and how do we get organizations to work together better? How do we encourage collaboration around the automation spaces that we're trying to build in DevOps? And that came back to version control and how we handle coupling between systems because in order to collaborate, we have to couple systems. But if we couple them in the wrong ways, we create complexity. And that is what we talk about today. But before we started that conversation, we had a really interesting warm-up conversation about Microsoft acquiring Activision that I left in because a lot of that was actually about the exact same topic of how do you integrate two organizations and business plans and go forward. Since it was news of the day, I think you'll be very interested in our take on it. So enjoy the whole episode with the additional uh, preview part. Thanks. What's what's your thinking about Microsoft buying Activision? Uh, I you know it, it's I saw it cross my it didn't didn't bike on my radar very much. It feels like normal Microsoft acquisition activity do you see do you see something more in it from that no but as you know the uh, developers are on strike <laughs> the activision developers no so that there's uh, an ongoing issue in uh, activision blizzard regarding uh uh sexual harassment in, in yep. the workplace okay so yeah, so in, in, with that in mind, and, and going back to your original uh, question there, um, Beth, um, I think Microsoft overpaid. Mm, I would say sixty-eight billion bucks. <laughs> but on the on the hand, they are very quickly accumulating AAA. Uh, Gaming studios, yeah. That mm-hmm. uh, they're they're poor. it's it's sort of like Disney acquiring all those uh, media assets, right? The way I, the way I thought about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking more EA. Like they're, they're they're certainly looking to buy popular franchises. Whether they do anything good with them or not is yet remains to be seen. Yeah. I kind of think of it, it's like the telco's foray into media content. Well, uh, Microsoft, Microsoft has a history of, of game development, uh, uh, the successful yeah. game development as well. Like Halo, um, it, like e- even the, the, the acquisition of, of Minecraft. Well, it was Blade yeah. Simulator, but mm-hmm. I, I think it was always a side business. Uh, I mean, I think once they started, they got serious on the 360 platform. Mm. It was it was a big deal. And what I hadn't thought about is that the they don't currently have a real VR entry point. And if you're looking for a really strong VR entry point, mm. um, it's going to come through game headsets and gaming. Yeah. Didn't they do some did. stuff oh, for the government with like HoloLens or something? Well, 
I'm interested to talk about Hololens. Actually, that would uh, that would be an interesting. If, if I don't have any expertise, have, have you played with it? I haven't. I just remember that that being kind of one of their things that has hit the radar in the last couple of years about the VR and obviously the whole metaverse thing now. It's a, it's an interesting dilemma, right? I, I'm I'm shocked at how much everybody shrugged when Amazon, no, when uh, Facebook rebranded to Meta, and then was like, "Oh, and now we want to talk about Metaverse." And I'm just, it. I'm, and I'm, they immediately got an antitrust suit thrown at them. Hmm. <laughs> like, so like Facebook rebranding to Meta, that it's. It, it got a hollow response because it was a hollow action. Yeah, like not nothing changed on, on on their behavior. Nothing changed on their user base. Yep. It's like, oh look, now we, we're trying to do this new product, but no one is interested in it. <laughs> well, well I, I there's no more Microsoft... interest than there used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a matter of how much they're gonna, you know. I, even if it's all hollow from, from our perspective, the fact that they're pushing on it so aggressively means that, you know, there will, it, it's, it's going to be either they're going to give up or they're going to keep pushing on it until people grudgingly just, you know, use it to shut you know, to shut everybody up. Um, I'm being a little, I'm, I'm being facetious, but, you know, there's an element of you, you throw something in, in front of people enough, they decide that they, they need to participate in it because that's what they're supposed to do. Or maybe not. <laughs> I think history is littered with lots of uh, things that are didn't make it. <laughs> yeah. and, and Facebook's history, or I guess Meta's now history with, uh, with VR is it's very tenuous as well like they they, they did acquire oculus yeah. and then they made a lot of people very very upset with, with their changes and and licensing and support uh they had to backtrack on that even yeah. um there's another backtrack going on on that one right now too because there's a lot some uh antitrust stuff again on oculus mm-hmm. so so at, at least Microsoft has the advantage over Meta in that they've had a long-standing history of development, not not in VR but in AR. Like their 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 tables, their, yeah. their collaborative yeah. stuff. Um, they're, they're not so good at the software side of AR, but mm-hmm. they're, they're certainly working very creatively on the hardware side of things. Well, but there's another factor, which is the Microsoft is also much better with working with enterprises, right? They've been selling into the enterprise and governments for what, 30 decades. years at this point, yep. decades, right? Meta knows nothing about selling into, into any of those entities. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Yes. But, I mean, is it reasonable to think that you know, Activision becomes, you know, if there is going to be a big VR, you know, push, that that would be exactly the, the type of engineering talent that you would want to add into your your teams? Well, 
So the question is, can you add that you've they've are Microsoft already has the Xbox and is yep. extremely successful with it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have the VR. Right. Activision, I assume, has the VR. Can they meld those two that the company into that division such that it gets rolled into because it, it would appear to me that the easiest, most straightforward way to get the VR in is through the Xbox because you already mm-hmm. have multiple 3D controls on the Xbox kind of thing. Yeah. And so it's a matter of whether they can successfully get the company to play with the division. And the whole reason Microsoft was successful with making Xbox a division was that they pretty much stayed mostly hands off of Xbox for at least five years when Xbox had come into the Microsoft fold when they bought the Xbox folks. So, and they had success with it. So maybe the question, but that was under Bill Gates and, um, and what's his name? So the question is whether they can do it now. Yeah. I, I yeah, still yeah. think, go ahead. There's uh, a cultural issue too. Uh, there's also a question as to whether, um, well, assuming that, that they're aiming for Xbox VR, whether that's actually going to take off or whether it's going to be another Kinect or PlayStation Move kind of uh, <laughs> Uh, although to be honest, the, the the PS Move did end up evolving into the the, the Sony's uh, VR platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, maybe something it's, will happen out of that. Did we say Google Glass? Like <laughs> Sorry, Google Glass. <laughs> did, didn't that well, get um, get the bought as well or, or spun off? I think they killed it. Like most they things. killed it. They yeah. killed it, but there's a small uh, hobby group that continues to add to it and whatnot. So there's enough. They left let enough stuff leak out or get reverse engineered that there's still folks out there wearing their Google glasses. <laughs> it's very strange, but, but hey. But at the end of the day, to me, it's a content story, right? And it's a it's a long game and a content story because like Google Glass came out with just like the hardware without a lot of apps or really understanding how to use it. And and they they didn't take the time and they didn't you know weren't patient to have the 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 stories, the narratives, the apps around it. Um but if you really want to build a long-term AR or VR you know engagement, you're gonna to have to have the content, the 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 properties to do it around and and the best way to do that is to buy this this existing brand right i mean to me it's like what disney did with all the the star wars and the marvel universes they they and now they're pumping out new stories like crazy that the studios were never doing that owned them originally yeah they have the advantage now that they have a pool of talent that they can shift between their franchises, um, produce consistent a consistent experience for their targeted demographics. Right. And they have right. the platforms where that content has much bigger life than, you know, a movie ticket 
three hours and maybe some Lego toys, right? It's, um, you know, they're, they're building, you know, much more long-term engagement around those, those stories, those, those properties. Oh yeah, they're they're going for the the horizontal integration on on that. Mm. So, it's, so it, it, there's the entertainment franchise and on the yeah, of course the, the toys and sales, uh, and even the theme parks. So they're they're, they're looking at it the, at the long term for sure, and, and there's definitely parallels with that with, with Microsoft as well. They're, they're they're looking not just what sells now, but what they can produce five, 10 years uh, down the road and, and become uh, a market leader then again, like they did with Xbox. Yeah, these are long-term long-term strategies. Well, they can afford to do long-term strategies. I'd be curious if the, if the cultural clash between the Activision Blizzard people and the Microsoft people causes it to be one of those failed mergers. Is there a culture of clash? I would guess there would be. <laughs> it it could be that they don't need the leadership. Well, right? They've, I'm they've assuming got... the Activision leadership are going to bail, of course, as soon as yeah. as, as soon as the ink is dry, they're going to be well, out of it. They're actually already bailing because of the whole sexual harassment thing. So mm-hmm. right now, Activision is really a dark blot. Uh, the the management has an extremely dark blot on it at the moment, and there are boycotts and everything of it. So that might also be why Microsoft is moving on it because it's kind of been degraded in its brand. Yeah, they but they still paid a premium, or at least they paid a fair value for the properties. But it also gives them really good excuse to get rid of management. <laughs> yeah, so that actually might help because the rank and file will will see. And Microsoft does not have a terrible um, track record on on uh, um, minorities and, uh, and women. Yeah, but, I, I didn't but, say a good one. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the problem is uh, getting. A, an HR team in there that can actually change the attitude of the workers who really right now are looking unfavorably on upper management. And so you need an HR team that will sit there and aggressively go after the complaints without really, it, it has to be careful because it's got, they have to go after the complaints aggressively, but they also have to make the people who are both complaining and the ones who aren't doing anything but sitting there with their heads down feel like they're not targeted. Yeah. On, on the other hand, it, it also provides the employees a uh, reasonable escape plan as well. Let, 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 let's say Microsoft decides to restructure. Then typically the, the, the offer is come join the new team or here is your 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 leaving bonus, um, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it gives the, those employees the opportunity to like the the, the safety net to to look for gainful employment somewhere else uh, if they decide to not stick with the company, or that they might just say like again like that they might think like like you better that maybe Microsoft is not as bad and and uh, they could stick around. Yeah. 
And yeah. also along with those bonuses, if they have like uh, golden handcuffs with the the uh, get out clause, uh, that would leave Microsoft to actually have a window for turning things around and making these folks feel more comfortable. Mm. But they're not going to do it for the the everyday guy. That's the issue. Yeah, but the reality is that it's a very different business model, and there's oh, yeah. and there's talent, uh, which you know the talent can bail uh, very easily. And and I think a lot actually, I think Activision and Blizzard use a lot of contractors for their talent stuff. Hmm. So I'd be curious if how that's going to work with with Microsoft. Microsoft is really good with contractors. They really know how to do regular contractors, although (laughs) they don't know how to do talent so far as I know. Right. That's what I was saying. Oh, Microsoft is expert at regular contractors because they got sued about it. (laughs) Yeah, they they have to recover. So, yeah, it's three three years and out or two years and out. Yeah. Yeah, the the whole uh, two, two levels of workers are. Yeah. Well, they still have that. But, uh. So, so I, this is a probably a reasonable place for us to, to transition to the the topic of the day because we're we're not that far from this. Um, I mean, we're talking about HR and HR communities and and corporate culture. Um, but I think that this you know those those things show up, um, you know, across the board. And so when we talk about and I'm thinking more on the operations side, but it's so hard to deal with operational environments. Um, and I do, I do feel like operations teams, especially when you get down into the sysadmin levels, um, are treated like second-class people in in a engineering organization. That they don't, they are given, um, you know, the same level of credibility in designing the systems or maintaining the systems or, or picking things even. Um, uh, so I, I do think that there's a really serious challenge when an operations team comes back. This is, I, I see this all the time and says, Hey, we need to improve this or fix this or change it. Um, they, it, it feels to me based on my experience in the industry that that, that team is often told, yeah, just fix it. Don't make a lot of noise. Um, we'd rather listen to what the developers want to do. It, so it varies, uh, and I think it, it varies to the point of being almost polarized. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that there are situations where the operation team is, as you said, made a second class citizen. There, there are other uh, places though where the operations team is basically uh, treated as a trusted advisor. And what, makes the dif- what makes the difference? Uh, that in, so- in those cases, though, if the operation team says, we need to change this, people listen. It, that change might not be immediate because you need to pro- maintain backwards compatibility and have your, uh, have your plan for the change. But... It, in 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 the companies where where the operations team is being listened to, you, the the change is possible. Um, the change is usually 
also a lot more more proactive than than a knee jerk reaction to to issues. Well, those seem to be those environments where security is still maintained at the forefront as well. And there are also companies where where operations are king. So, for instance, a company like Target or maybe Walmart, where things get slowed down and development gets changed because operation says, no, you're not doing it that way. I was going to say all the telcos operations is king. Operations yep. can shut something down faster than your head could spin. Yep. But ironically, it gets, but I, I don't know about it in other companies, but certainly in the telco industry, operations tends to be extremely conservative. And I can understand why, right? Because uh, we're an operations you, company. <laughs> we're an operations company. And, you know, we don't want to see headlines like uh, Verizon's network went down for three hours because somebody fat fingered a um, network, you know, a, a uh, DNS entry. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we've certainly seen those headlines about um, Google a- and uh, AWS recently, haven't we? And back in, was it the 80s or the 90s when they fat fingered a hexadecimal? Uh, couplet, and so it was like BD, and they it got DB, and it took down AT and T through like two thirds of the country for hours, mm. as it rolled through the automatic updates in the different uh, s- central offices. So we haven't seen it in a long time, but it's happened with the the telcos. Yes, it has <laughs> and in the past. It, it has hasn't recently right. though. Exactly, because yeah. they learn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then on the other hand, telcos still rely on BGP a lot. Mm-hmm. Do they have uh, a Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> yeah but do you yeah. have a choice? Right. One of the, but one of the reactions we see with this is, the, is that individual teams then go back and say, okay, I, you, you get two effects. One is you, you got the IT of the 90s effect, which is you've got a team that's saying no or resisting changes. And then you've got tools in people's hands where they're like, well, I'll just do something for my team and get out of, get out of my way. Right. Which is the cloud adoption pattern. Um, and um, once you've done it, it's right. It's, it's so much harder to put the toothpaste back in the tube. So that we, we sort of get this ops risk aversion <laughs> translating into ops avoidance, which then translates into you know, uh, silos. Uh, yes and no. Like uh, risk avoidance uh, again. The, the question is: Was reactive and proactive? Reactive, reactive risk avoidance tends to focus on don't touch anything if it, if it's not broken. Proactive risk avoidance, on the other hand, is aims more towards we do need to make changes. We like we, we need to minimize the impact of these changes. We need to have a rollback plan. Um, and and we, we see that in, in, in the in the, the like the deployment patterns that we have, the like the the, the various strategies. Um, it's it, it's clearly polarizing in, in, in that there there's still um a, a a very large group of 
risk of 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 ops people or or even like uh, meta ops people who who want to avoid risk by not making changes because <laughs> if I didn't touch it I didn't break it kind of thing yeah um on the other hand uh that does uh also mean that the product ends up stagnating right um and in a telco that's not that's not an issue because the, uh, a, a product that doesn't change very often when it comes to telecommunications is a good thing well, um, so uh, let me let me probe into that because yes and no because <laughs> um we we I'll say our ops people are very conservative um they do sort of both they don't touch it um, but they also do proactive um, operational stuff like automating, you know, to avoid fat figuring, you know, you just you automate the process. Um, so we do both, but we also find that we're constantly struggling <laughs> with company, you know, our vendors, because we're not software people, you know. As a company, yeah, we do have people who write software, but that's not our main focus, right? We don't write software particularly, um, other than as glue to our systems. And we are constantly fighting, you know, the, the vendor will add some new feature and we want to roll it out because, or the product people like me, we're like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. This is a good feature. Our customers are asking for it. And the operations people are like, ah, you got to <laughs> test it, blah, 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 blah. So we're constantly running into that. Um, and, and, and we do have products that have stagnated. And um, then we have to do the migration. There's one in particular right now that um, we, we migrated the product to a different platform um, literally three years ago. Uh, we still have, uh, I, I haven't checked the numbers, but a good percentage of our customers are still on the old platform, which has been deprecated by the vendor like two years ago. <laughs> um, I even got an email like, just yesterday, hi, um, we want to buy this the the deprecated version of the product, but I can't, I don't see it in the in the ordering system. Why not? And we're like, because uh, we stopped selling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, we we see that all the time in in our customers' deployments, where they even if they should be upgrading to the new, they will continue to roll out the the old the version they're on. Yeah, um, no amount of caution is is, is enough for uh, for that to that to change. Um, well, but then you have to maintain both versions because that's that's what we're stuck doing. Yeah, I mean, this is I mean part of part of where I was going with the original topic is you know as we think about platform teams. You know, you you end up with an operational. The goal the goal here is that more teams should use the same tools in the same ways. Mm -hmm. um, not that we should eliminate heterogeneity in the systems, but the the more that you can have reuse of componentry or reuse of of tools, reuse of of automation, 
then the, the you know easier it is to support within the organization. The, the, the flip side of that is that as soon as you get a body of, of groups, teams using the same thing, the risk of changing it and impacting, you know, one, you know, fixing it for one team and breaking it for another team goes way, way up. And it, so they, yeah. yeah it, it's ultimately an, an architecture problem. Hmm. Um, you, you, I mean, the, the, the more something is, the more a tool is used by, by the teams, the more coupled it becomes. And, and we know that that high coupling is typically not a great idea. Um, it it is compounded if the the tools themselves are not versioned. But let's ah. say you, let's say you have your CI pipelines, and you can only run the latest version of that pipeline. Now you're stuck with ensuring that the latest version always uh, is, is, is always backwards compatible and, 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 and never breaks um, everyone's, uh, everyone else's uh, flow. Um, right. Once you start versioning, on the other hand, you can start releasing new versions. You can, you can do your uh, canary uh, rollouts. Um, you can have major version changes that can be adopted within a certain time window as opposed to all at once. Uh, to, to, to an extent, Google does this internally when, when, when they roll out new features. Um, and, and there's something actually I experienced recently is that they, they, they are rolling out a new feature for, 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 uh, for mapping principles in, 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 in IAM. Um, and each of the teams is responsible for rolling out support individually to, to this. So, so it, it is internally versioned. Uh, that, and it, some, some of the, the, their, their SaaS offerings may, may already support it, uh, but it's not documented until it's rolled out across the board. Um, and what enables that is, again, decoupling uh, the, the specific version from, uh, from the dependencies. I'd like some thoughts about how uh, maintaining multiple versions um, and, and how to avoid that since. I, I actually was hearing Klaus's thing as you should maintain multiple versions. Yeah, that's what I was hearing too. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, I, which, I, which I agree with. And yeah. I mean, we, we, we actually work to enable this. Hard. So Go you've got the issue of how many versions you maintain. Are there versions that you shouldn't maintain in the, the middle? And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but Google has this tendency to just jump in and do things without thinking through things through. So the it's they act they architect this system after the fact to meet what their teams are already doing. So I can see maintaining some multiple versions if it's architected in, but if you're just slapping architecture on after the fact, it's 
I keep going <laughs> back to to a friend of mine saying in Cisco there was a bug that was in virtually all of their versions and they had to roll it out across the world and they had to fix 256 versions. So, and they knew every single version they had to fix, but it came down to 256. That's not really maintainable. And it was because they had lots of old versions and new versions and stuff, but every single version had it. And every single one was on its own little branch because that's how you had to maintain the individual version for the machine and the software version. Mm. And Cisco was fairly famous for having a 6 million versions of everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Google sounds like they're approaching that too. Well, Cisco's no longer doing that. Um, Exactly. They're getting much more draconian about, hi, we have end of life. Mm. And we are not supporting this anymore. End of story. And that was partly because of that guy who said we had 256 versions to fix. He was the manager at the time. And he said, no, this has got to stop. Right. And he retired long ago. But he was the one who changed the direction on that. And and in that sense, Google is pretty well known for... Uh, being rather trigger happy with their with end of life uh, of products. That's true uh, too. So so while while they do rotate through or while they do uh, produce new versions quickly, they, they they're also mm-hmm. uh, very insistent on saying you need to upgrade to the new version at some point. Well. Except that I think from what I've seen of Google, it's more along the lines of the end of life products, not versions. And so they just say, you have to get off of this product because we've developed a new product that does all the same thing, but has fewer versions out in the wild. Yeah, yeah, that's what they do. And But also Cisco has the advantage that, well, advantage or not, they they still kind of think in hardware terms. So they they tie their upgrades to hardware. And they still do that. Perhaps we're we're looking at at the different meaning of versions. So so what when 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 I'm looking at Google versions, I'm I'm looking at their their SaaS offerings, like uh GKE or 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 their their databases. Um they 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 have their release channels. For example, with GKE, they have the stable, they, they, they have the, uh, I, I forget what they're called, um, stable beta and uh, um, and latest or, or something like that. Um, once, once a version is no longer supported by stable, it is off their system. You, you cannot go back to it. Uh, in fact, if you if you have a a GKE cluster SAS, SAS. That, that is on a version that is that will be deprecated, they will force an upgrade on you. Who? Which company? Google. Google. Oh, Google. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why Google Apps has not done so well in the uh, in the in the enterprise space 
they keep changing shit. And, yeah. And, uh, and end of life and shit really fast. And you can't do that in an enterprise. No, you, you can't, but, but I also think that all of us, right. Should be designing our systems to have at least two concurrent versions running in it. Mm-hmm. But, right. This, no. this to me is, is if, if I want to have, so this comes back to, to me, what, where I see the goal, right? Um, if I want to have multiple teams sharing operational environments, then I have to have the acknowledgement that some teams will need features that are not yet in mainline production. And we, you have to have a way to say, okay, we're going to advance that operational environment uh, without breaking the everybody else, right? That, that ops team has to be able to do that. In enterprise situations, it's either, if it's a small enterprise, it's a single team that will actually work on it on the side until they roll out a pilot and then roll it up. In large enterprises, it's literally uh, a whole planning situation and operations and logistics. And so it's different. Now, software folks who design for that, that's great. But you don't know which one an enterprise is going to jump for, which version, uh, when they want to move up. And so from the the third-party vendor perspective, you can't predict which two versions you need to support going forward. You know, is it, <laughs> from, and so from the vendor's like, perspective, we stick on. It's, it's kind of like so, the CentOS thing. I, I need more than two for the vendors to yeah. do this. Yeah, there's also the distinction of, of of version supported as a vendor for your clients and and version supported internally. Yeah. Yes. Like, it, it, like if if I'm going to use Postgres, I, I I'm not going to aim to support version say eight and up. I'm I'm going to say I, I support this version, which is the, the one that my company is standardizing on, and I'm going to start supporting the next version so that I have an upgrade path once it, it becomes the, the, the next stable one uh, and the previous one uh, goes back. I mean, going back to the earlier early discussion, that, that was the whole appeal of CentOS, right? Yes. And, and, exactly. and well, in general. Right. That's true, but, as opposed to I mean, Fedora, to, which was oh uh, yeah, which, which I, was well, it, uh, just yeah. whatever the latest is, and then burn, burn your, you know, you're you're done. Um, but it seems, I mean, it seems to me like that that that's the relief valve here is that if that you know you want to be able to say all right, we're going to standardize on Postgres, and you know. That means we're not going to try and push everybody along to whatever the latest is, but we do want to be able to say, yes, you can adopt the latest version and we will give you support or a version and give you support. Um, because if you don't, and I, this is worth naming, right? If you don't do that, if the IT departments and the ops departments say, don't, you know, you can't use whatever version of, then somebody's just going to say, well, hell, heck with it. I'm going to get my own snowflake database and i'm going to spin up snowflake and you know and, and do it because it has the features i want and now you know that gets into production and now you've got 
you know, it's not just two versions of something. You've got two different platforms. So the, the counter issue becomes on the, the upside yeah. of a, a, an application is being developed. And uh, I always come back to the Java app where there's a Java app and it's like, oh, on all your desktops, a really old version of Java has to be installed in order to support the application. And so now Ops has to take the flack for a quote unquote development issue without an, an outcome or a reasonable finish line in mind. And so there's always a, a tricky scenario where yeah. depending upon what kind of organization you are, whether you have in-house development or if all you're really consuming is commercial off-the-shelf software, it's a, in a lot of ways, it comes a, a really different scenario depending upon the kind of software that's being developed, whether it's in-house or external. Well, that gets that's get back to our earlier conversation about, you know, uh, s- services industries, you know, like like Verizon, where we're sur- we're. The software is just, we're just using it to provide a service, right? So that's that's different. I mean, our customers, for the most part, don't care what version of software we're running as long as, as, long as the packets get through, right? Right. But uh, right to Marta's point here is, you know, an, an ops-leaning organization you know, do you think they would come back and say, wait, we're not going to deploy this old, you know, fix, fix that version? I, I mean, there's a degree of, it's a reasonable thing to say, you know what, you can't, we're not going to sustain an old version of Java, fix it. So um, it's all about who drives the business because the exactly. traditional thing is, and, and I am really starting to disdain the term, but a lot of people refer to IT or even ops specifically as a cost center. Almost along the lines of literally you're burning or costing the company money, which is actually true when you think about it. But if all that you think of IT operations is, is a cost center, then no, don't, don't burden my developers or my development team to have to fix the app. Ops, you just band-aid it and life will keep going on. We'll keep making money. Yeah, well, that's the gaming. The gaming industry is very definitely like that because... But the average game has has a lifespan of what six months. <laughs> so, uh, wow. And then then there's the people that are really into the retro games, but uh, that's a whole different conversation. But the oh, audience is man, is that's tiny. getting big. But that is an interesting future topic too. Like, uh, what what will happen to quote unquote retro games in? Uh, and the the world in the world of post DRM. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Oh, man, so DRM just got broken too because Intel's latest version of their security doesn't support DRM, so you cannot watch 4K movies anymore. On uh, you can't watch 4K movies on your um, your Blu-ray systems, uh, the newer ones, because DRM is broken because Intel no, no longer supports what's needed for DRM. So no 4K movies. Well, but it goes beyond that because um, <laughs> so I'll give I'll give an example. So my um, my daughter, I, I have a four year old grandson and we decided to get him something that my daughter had fond memories of, which was the living books um series i don't know if you remember any of these but it was rough's bone and um uh anyhow there was a whole series of these things that were done in the 1990s 
<clears throat> and they were all, they were issued on the Mac and the PC uh, platforms. Well, the company went through a whole bunch of craziness. They were bought by Hope Mifflin. They were spun off. Blah 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 blah. So. I went in search of some of these books because I had sort of fond memories of them. And um, so it turns out there's like, it's like my little pony people. They, <laughs> they, they, um, oh, they have collections. Yeah. Right. There's, there's these people that have very fond memories of these, of these games and they have somewhat, you know, they've converted them at least sort of to newer platforms uh some of them it, there were some copyright issues with some of them because they did a bunch with arthur uh and uh, those were not available but um we were able to find a couple of them and uh some were free and i paid three bucks for one um to download it and they were just sort of randomly glitchy because <laughs> of course they were done on the cheap um, and they were converting from, you know, literally 20-year-old platforms, or in this case, 30-year-old platforms. <laughs> and, and so there's a whole bunch of these, like, retro game enthusiasts and that, you know, want this stuff. And and there's a lot of hoops to jump through to, to get support for this. <laughs> and there are now people... Well, with VMs and, and containers and stuff, there are a bunch of people who are actually rebooting old operating systems and old yep. simulations of hardware and operating systems to get these games running. Yes. So there's there's a, um, wow. a whole little uh, community of folks that are putting simulations of like 6502s and stuff out there on the internet so that they can get their old favorite games working well in the case of rough spoon it turns out there's a website called retro games exactly <laughs> exactly and there's all sorts of stuff up there but uh you know there's also a whole industry now about remastering games yes yes and 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 games are obviously you know have a, a short half life and you know it's not essential that they can get converted but but there is but in seriousness there's a bunch of stuff um, hardware drivers for all sorts of weird specialty things um, that that companies have to you know do simulators. Um, this this goes back a few years, but I work. I did some work for a manufacturing company that uh, manufactured test instrumentation, and uh, for uh, like testing um, welds in like nuclear submarines and that kind of stuff. It was very oh, specialized. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, you want the welds to be still working. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were using and the, and the thing with this stuff is that it has to be calibrated. So. So the people that, you know, the companies that would buy it would then send it back to the company periodically to get it recalibrated. Well, all those calibrators were based on old um, cards, hardware cards that ran on like DOS 3.01. <laughs> and so we had to maintain all this serious random crap <laughs> just to maintain these things. So. 
And that was a multi-million dollar industry. Yep. So what is what would it take for that to be on a modernization path? I mean, because you'd have to have the, the hardware would have to be updated or somebody would have to spend a lot of time forwarding it to another yeah. platform. And so the question is whether it's more cost effective to just sit there and fudge and patch the old stuff or to redesign a new system to handle the calibration. And it was obvious that at the time it was more cost effective to just keep fudging the old DOS yeah. 3.0. Mm -hmm. Well, that and buying the hardware off eBay. Yeah, yeah. And that was when my husband was at Microsoft and they were uh, doing all their blades for uh, Hotmail. My husband was running Hotmail at the time. So, uh, Supermicro or a company that was like Supermicro, but before they had a special uh, contract with those folks saying, these are the chips you're going to use when you send us our blades. And we don't care how you get them. We don't want anything but these chips because this newer version of the chip doesn't work for yeah. our application. Sadly, there's a lot of that out there still. And and but to me, that's the, the question. How do we dip away at that in a meaningful way? Because that's uh, that operation is, you know, those operational patterns. Um so the key yeah. is is if newer chips uh maintained the old operations only main, maintain the old operations while they added new features, it would be fine, but they don't, they change things. And even in the hardware yeah. world, when I was in the, in the mid nineties, we would get computer boards that had the exact same rev number on them, but you look at them and they obviously had different chipsets on them, but they had the same rev number on them. Right. And they worked differently down at the at the level above metal because you interacted with four chips differently than you interacted with a single chip of memory or whatever. Yeah. And we had problems with that. And we couldn't say this rev is the one to use this software on, this rev is the one to use this one on, because there was nothing that differentiated them other than looking at them and saying they're different. Yeah. Now we're now we're back to this is this is a slippery slope because there's times when changing the version number of something makes a ton you know, is that would let you determine that. And there's times exactly. when if there weren't really difference, if, if it wasn't supposed to be operationally different, then then you wouldn't then you wouldn't want to change the version number because then you you yeah. it'd be a sub, you know, it's a valid substitute. Well, well, even an A B would have helped us because most people you know, if you know that AB is only hardware and first level of firmware, it's at least lets the software people know we don't, you know, it's operationally the same, but it's different for the people writing drivers. Right, right. That that's that's the issue. And and by the way, Rob, as you well know, Dell was famous for this. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I can tell I can tell you from dealing with all the hardware vendors we deal with. They're 
they all do a, it. Dell, Dell's, Dell's especially good at supply chain, so they were more likely to. We we did see that, but um, no, this is it's an it's an endemic problem. It's it's a problem on cloud infrastructure too, because you could be in a different cloud environment on or on a different rev of their platform and get different behaviors. Right. I mean, I I'll give you a, a, and we do we need to wrap up on time because I've I've got to go, but. Um, I've been doing multi-cloud work where I'm I'm doing cloud nets across I'm up to mm. eight different clouds, um, which is completely bespoke in every single cloud. Um, yeah. And is it Google or Microsoft? I think it's Microsoft. In their cloud init, the legacy cloud init section, they they don't actually put the right idea. Um, they do in the top version, but they don't in the bottom version. But nobody. <laughs> Cares. So, you know, except for you, except for me, who notices, and anybody you know, but, else who's doing multi cloud. Well, it's simply a constraint that literally the cloud providers have to deal with. So we all have to work around somebody's inconsistency. We, we all work around it. No, and it's that's where it's, I have, you know, our stuff just ends up, you just accept it and you say, all right, the, I have a lookup table that says, this is how I figure this out. And, on this yeah. platform at this time. And that's and to that's quote a friend who was a director at Netflix, we're small potatoes. They don't listen to us. <laughs> and that well, was the, Netflix the, the, talking about AWS. Yeah, they I mean the, don't matter to AWS. That's interesting because that was at one point Netflix was one third of their business. Yep. And yet it's they they had no power over AWS as of last year. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting a sense of deja vu, but back to the days of the CPU architecture wars, well, like 90s and then oh, yeah. turn of the century. And uh, it makes sense. Because the, the cloud, cloud architecture is the current you know, CPU architecture in lots of ways. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 <laughs> there was a lot of innovation, but the, the problems with interoperability were uh, headache inducing. Are still. We still are. are. Still, yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Yep. Thank you, everybody. This this was interesting. I I I wish we I felt like we'd make more progress, but I think laying the 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 issues out is 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 progress of its own. So so here's the key. If we're gonna talk about this later, we need these items uh, itemized, bulletized, so that we can focus on layering on top of this. Now that we know the issues, how we layer on top of it, but we need to see that. I'll, I'll, I'll start us from a seed. That's reasonable. I'll put it in the agendas. Thank you. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks last folks. Bye. Cheers. Well, it's really remarkable to me how we can dig into complexity more and more. And a lot of it comes down to very simple practices that enable us to grow and scale in collaborative ways. Uh, complexity is normal in IT organizations, and that means that we can't get rid of it. We need to cope with it. And this conversation hopefully helped you down that path too. Thanks, and join us at the Cloud, the, the cloud 2030 or the 2030.cloud. Uh, for uh, more 
be, be part of our community, come in and participate in these roundtables. Uh, they are dynamic and robust, and they just need your voice, too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.